This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode six, Imperator Scotorum. ourselves with Ireland. This magical land serves as a counterbalance for its larger and more complex neighbor throughout the late medieval period. And I promise after today, we will not be finished with her. We will return, I'm sure, again and again, because the things that occur in Ireland are are microcosms of much larger social and religious and political machinery at play for the next several centuries. Ireland, in short, is a fascinating place with fascinating people. And one such Irishman, a man by the name of Brian, at this point in our story embodies the ancient Irish mystique and that fighting spirit to overwhelm and overcome nearly any obstacle in his way. Brian has accepted the crown from his murdered brother to rule the Dalgosh and Thomond kingdoms. He's defeated the Vikings at Limerick twice and finally killed their leader, Ivar, in an ambush to claim this invaluable town at the mouth of the River Shannon as an Irish port. He avenged his brother's murder, and then he rose to the rank of the King of Munster. Okay, so though still not as influential as Maelsesnel Macdonnell, the King of Tara, Brian wastes no time in clearing Vikings from the ports of Cork, Waterford, and Wexford before heading northeast his sights set on the prize port in all of Ireland, Dublin. But when Brian overwhelms the kingdoms of Connacht and Leinster, Male Cessnell himself decides it's time to take this man very seriously. If you remember, we left Brian praying in his tent, the year 1014, most certainly praying for the men fighting under his banner outside. And I imagine thinking about the moments in his long 80-year life that led him to this point. I hope you enjoy the show. Thinking back on his life, his hands clasped in front of him, head bowed, I wonder if for a moment Brian went back to his personal battle with Ivar and his Limerick Vikings. The year was 967. His brother, Mathgamain, still lived and was king of the Dalgash and Thomond. Mathgamain also recently made peace with Ivar of Limerick, much, I imagine, to Brian's horror. A king acts in accordance with what's best for his people, but his people sometimes have alternative motivations. Brian, it seems, could not live peacefully with his parents' murderers. That's right. Ivar's men murdered Brian's mother and father in separate attacks years earlier. And Brian, according to one version of his life, witnessed the raid on the fort his mother was in. Using any method available to him, especially guerrilla tactics, that harassed Ivar's Vikings and took giant tolls on the enemy, Brian, after four years of skirmishing, independent of his brother's, his king's, will... He records only about 14 or 15 men left in his company to fight. He must have been humbled to find his brother, King Mathgamain, joining forces with him in an effort to once and for all rid Delgash of the looming Vikings and their threat at the mouth of their most important river. Brian must remember glimpses of the atrocities that followed Ivar's escape to Britain. According to John Haywood's book, Northmen, the following year, the brothers captured and sacked Limerick, executing all male prisoners of fighting age. The rest were sold as slaves. In 969, Ivar returned with a fleet and regained control of Limerick, only to be expelled again by the Dalgosh in 972. This cycle of expelling and regaining seemed to have no end throughout Brian's life, as we'll soon see. And in Ireland, even through vigilance, one learns the hard way 
that nothing lasts forever. The world is always in flux. The seasons, they come and go with every torturous winter. A, a pleasant spring will follow. The waves crash against the cliffs. The cliffs slowly give way. For as much sunshine you feel on your face, you can also open your eyes to cloud cover. You know, a, a shorn sheep will always grow more wool. And a foe, Viking or other eyes, once defeated, will always return. A truth Brian must surely have known watching his brother rise to the king of Munster only to be cut down shortly afterward. And yet, he fought and he conquered for the next 50 or 60 years of his life. He was a tireless man and a merciless victor. It all started with a battle for control over a far western Viking port town and a fellow countryman's right to rule. And that's where we find our 80-year-old Brian praying in his tent. The years have been long and bloody, but after taking back control of the Rock of Cashel, the seat of the overkingdom of Munster, in 978, Brian, atop, as Haywood states in Northmen, a natural fortress, a craggy limestone hill, rising abruptly and offering a magnificent view over the fertile plains of County Tipperary. It must have been an incredible sight, and the magnificence of Ireland's gently rolling landscape must have played a symbolically important role in solidifying Brian's place in Ireland's political structure. All of Munster knew who their king was, and as we explained in the last episode, the, the rest of Ireland will soon know as well. By the year 996, Brian had claimed overlordship of a massive amount of Irish land. Concentrated mainly in the southern half of the island, it wasn't until the King of Leinster, Duncan McDonnell, submitted to him that Mael Cessnell made it official, at least over the southern half. Either way, due to Brian's improbable and meteoric rise, Ireland's entire political structure was, like everything else, in flux. Remember, Mael Cessnell belonged to the northern Uinil, and the O'Neill clan had ruled over a somewhat united Ireland. They weathered uprisings here and there, and they, no they negotiated between kingdoms, and there was always a conflict at some point, but there had never been someone quite like Brian. I said that Brian caused Ireland's entire political structure to be in flux, but I think that might be an understatement. Brian shook its very foundation. By 996, Brian had control of all major ports in Ireland, except for one, Dublin, where Li River Liffey and River Pottle converge before heading out to sea. There was a black tidal pool where Vikings first settled in a group large enough for archaeological significance, though it's believed that any number of Celts most likely inhabited it off and on for centuries prior. The accepted year of Dublin's official first founding has been recognized as 988, and even the city of Dublin made this official in 1988 by celebrating Dublin's first millennium. The origins of its name is no secret, really, though the spelling shifted over the last thousand years. The Old Irish word for black or dark was dub, while the Old Irish word for pool or any very small body of water was lind. Dublin would become the seat of overall Irish power soon enough, but in 996 it was ruled over by a Viking warlord named Citric Silkbeard. Citric would proudly continue its long-held and incredibly lucrative trade in slaves, among other things. You know, I'm currently researching the impact of the medieval slave trade for a series later on, but suffice it to say that though the Vikings were a linchpin in the, in the sale of slaves around Europe and the Middle East, the Irish, Arab Muslims, Moors, and the Sub-Saharan Africans played shamefully large roles, among other peoples. And Dublin happened to be a growing center for trade of slaves in and out of the island under the Viking rule. Anyway, so some exports through Dublin included Irish butter, wool, fish, cheese, oats, and flax, while imports usually centered on 
Arab spices and sugars, Chinese silk, African metals and jewels, and other luxuries not present. It was no wonder why Dublin was such a coveted possession to anyone with power in Ireland, especially when you consider that Dublin was the chosen port closest to major trade routes through Britain, Normandy, Denmark, and Wales. When you've opened yourself up to the mainland, you're essentially connected to China, really, which means you're trading your goods anywhere and everywhere along an unfathomable 6,100-mile path, or 9,800 kilometers. Irish butter, for instance, has been written about in a northern Italian monastery, while stone, wine, and salt, for instance, were major pre-Norman imports, and Dublin carried them all. See, Citric, <laughs> Citric was wealthy. I mean, I mean, like, really wealthy. And Brian had already uh, made a name as being that rising star. Well, see, he wanted some of that wealth. Okay, well, not some of it. Brian wanted all of Dublin's wealth. Already in possession of Limerick, Cork, Waterford, and Wexford, Brian had just one more imported jewel, so to speak, to put in his crown before he could raise an army large enough to demand male Sessionel's obedience. Brian's attempt on Dublin was tricky, as Dublin was in a constant state of flux during the previous decade or so. Let's start with Citric's family. Citric's father went by a few different names, but we know for sure he was the ruler of Viking York and Dublin in the mid to late 900s. His name was Olaf Quaran, or Amleb Maxictric, and he left Dublin to his son, Glunjern, in 980. Citric's mother, Gormleth, was an Irish lady described in a later saga as the fairest of all women. She, as so many queens throughout medieval Europe that we'll be meeting, was a clever woman with unmatched beauty and an unmatched ear for politics. One takeaway here is that Citric was half Scandinavian and half Irish. To say that Citric was ruler of Dublin is on its face a fact, but there's that nuance piece slipping in again that we need to flesh out. It's not exactly clear who took over Dublin after Glunjern left inexplicably in 989, but Citric's rival to the throne of Dublin might have very well assumed control instead of Citric, but it must have been very short-lived. His name was Ivar of Waterford, now under Brian's rule. So the years between 989 and 994 are a little sketchy as to who was leading Dublin, and this may have been the result of someone we're pretty familiar with already. See, there were raids during 980s up and down the southern and eastern Irish coasts, raids that were not only coastal Irish towns, but also on those important Viking ports like Cork and Waterford and Wexford, and that's right, Dublin. They weren't game-changing raids that brought about these huge, you know, shifts in the power structure, but they could have certainly played into Brian's relative ease in taking these ports for himself. The coasts were raided and plundered year after year, but when 989 came, Dublin, Dublin was in this raiding party's crosshairs. Citric's sister, Githa took a fancy to this powerful Norwegian raider, and it is said in a couple sources that she even married this man. Through this marriage, Dublin had severely weakened the incentive of other Viking and Irish raids on Dublin, which spared Dublin for a few years around the year 990. But this raider, this husband of Githa and de facto ruler of Dublin, had business to attend to elsewhere. So around 991, he set sail again to go down in history for something else entirely. This raider took to the seas again, and after making ports in Normandy, it said, he crossed to Kent and raided towns like Folkestone, only to move on to rest on a little island at the mouth of River Blackwater with only a submerged causeway connecting it to the mainland, about one mile east of the town of Malden. Yes, for a short while, the ruler by marriage of Dublin was none other 
than Olaf Tryggvason. Within two years, he would reclaim his father's throne as king of Norway, and by 999, he would play that game of chess with the Icelandic merchant Leif Eriksson, which would send Eriksson to Greenland, where he would hear about a mysterious land just beyond the western horizon. And we know what happens after that. See, now, I know we're off on a tangent here, but history doesn't happen on a linear paradigm like so many misguided history textbooks show us. History is interconnected, and it's complex, and there are no shortages of connections to be made. And when we, when we can see these connections, we can begin to appreciate the nuance of our ancestors' stories. And maybe, just maybe, begin to appreciate the fact that we're not really all that separated on, on a longer and wider timeline. All right, back to Dublin. What we know for sure is that Citric was leader of Dublin by 995, 996, that time. And we know that Mael Seshnell retaliated against Dublin in that same year for an attack by Citric's nephew on a church in County Meath. Citric then retaliated in 997 in, in two towns in Meath. See, back and forth this, this went until 998, when Mael Seshnell and Brian, having agreed upon a truce, forced Citric back to back down. It was here when he had the wrath of the sitting High King of Ireland and a rising superpower from Munster that he had a giant target on his back sitting in Ireland's most lucrative port city. Citric didn't have friends, but he did have family. Citric's mother Gormleth, remember, well, she, as we learned already, was she was Irish by birth, she was born to the Mercada family, and her brother, Citric's uncle, was Mael Morda MacMercada, the king of the Uifelain in northern Leinster. Citric allied with Mael Morda to overthrow Donkad MacDonald and throw him in a Dublin prison as a hostage. Mael Morda took control of the kingdom of Leinster while Citric felt, you know, a touch safer in Dublin. What they failed to take into account was the wrath of Brian, who had just secured Leinster as a dominion of his under King Duncan MacDonald. This was an affront to Brian's rule, and it would not be forgiven or forgotten. But the people of Leinster didn't submit easily either to Brian. They simply couldn't stomach him or Mael Sheshnell's leadership. I mean, at least Mael Morda was a lesser king of Leinster before the takeover. So Mael Morda and Citric, with Leinster and Dublin support on their side, decided to meet Brian's army at Glen Mama, near Ardclough in 999. This well-documented battle was a pivotal moment in Brian's already illustrious career. By trapping Mael Morda's joint Leinster-Dublin army in a low valley they call Wicklow Pass, they were able to decimate the rebels and just embarrass the leaders, Upwards of 6,000 or more Norsemen died alone. It was, by definition, a rout. But both sides took a beating. It was December 30th, just one day before the turn of the millennium. And it was an absolutely frigid winter day. This one battle effectively shut down the uprising, and Brian was able to ransom Mael Morda himself afterwards. Also, this was the moment that Brian marched his forces into Dublin and sacked it. While Brian held Mael Morda prisoner, while he marched into Dublin unimpeded, Citric escaped north. It's said that he sought refuge in a few kingdoms there, but remember, these kingdoms were still under Mael Seshnell's ultimate influence, so Citric found little to no quarter. So he decided to return to Dublin, bend the knee, and seek a deal with Brian. Surprisingly, Brian was, I mean, comparatively speaking, merciful. Essentially, Citric gained, regained, excuse me, regained control of Dublin and even took Brian's sister for a wife. The catch? Citric now owed Brian loyalty and tribute, which was substantial. And, well, Mael Cessnell, he had to give up his wife, Gormleth. Yes. Citric Silkbeard's mother, Gormleth. Oh, and Gormleth, she was also Mael Morda's sister. 
So when you think about it, after defeating Citric, Brian simultaneously became his sister's dad, Citric's stepdad, and his defeated foe's brother-in-law. Just think about that for a minute. I mean, I don't know. But on a slightly more serious note, it should give you a peek as to the role of marriage in medieval royal society. I know we've mentioned it before, but really, I caution anyone not to downplay the political intrigue in medieval marriage. Whether we're talking about Brian and Gormleth here in Ireland, Ethelred and Emma in England, or ones we'll talk about in future episodes between the Rus and the Byzantines, or, or the French and the English, and on and on and on. The role of marriage, and more importantly, the role of women in the medieval world of the upper echelon of society, it simply cannot be understated. Women play as important of a role in medieval society as the men, even if on the surface it may not readily seem so. Believe me, we could have a a whole podcast series of episodes pointing out the reprehensible behaviors of medieval men and their expectations for women during this time. But we can't lose sight of the fact that ladies like Gormleth and, and Emma, and as we'll see, you know, like Eleanor of Aquitaine, among so many others, see, these ladies are linchpins to international peace and commerce and even war intentions. See, in this case, Gormleth alone carried the weight of tying the High King of Southern Ireland to not only her new husband's two defeated foes in Dublin, her son, and Leinster, her brother, but also the High King of Northern Ireland, her ex-husband. So we need to take a step back and recap what's happened so far. Brian has risen from the King of the Dalgash and Thoman kingdoms to be King of Munster, and he now shares, more or less, the crown of High King of Ireland. Through marriage, Brian's united his two most unruly overkings beneath him in the Irish royal hierarchy, as well as the king of the highly influential kingdom of Tara. And he has effectively subdued free-range Viking activity on the island by taking ports like Cork and Waterford, Limerick and Wexford, and now the coveted Dublin. Yeah, so, I mean... That ought to do it. Here's a good chance, as any, really, to stop and ask ourselves a question here. What's changed in Ireland up to this point in 999? Well, for one, the political structure has been shaken to its core. No one truly threatened the rule of the Unil clan as high king until now. Sure, Ireland was full of lesser kingdoms and even towns battling one another for land and and resources and whatnot, even pride, say, for centuries. But in the last century or more, there, there just seems to be an unspoken agreement around the island that the Unil were the high kings. It, it was kind of that simple. Well, it was that simple for everyone except Brian. Brian upended this assumption, especially since it was male Sessionel of the Unil who presented a truce in the first place. So after Brian had become that de facto ruler of the entire southern half of Ireland, after he had more or less forced the high king to recognize his legitimacy, Brian was still unsatisfied. See, he was a tireless campaigner and someone who could rule with an iron fist when needed. He wasn't happy with shaking the traditional hierarchy across Ireland. Brian wanted to upend it. He didn't want to be high king of half of Ireland. He wanted to be high king of all of it. After taking Dublin and forcing submission of Male Morda and Citrix rebel soldiers, see, Brian acted swiftly. Within two years, by 1002, around the time King Ethelred of England ordered the slaughter of all Danes living within his kingdom, we call that, we remember we call that St. Bryce's Day Massacre, around this time, Brian had replaced Male Morda, his new brother-in-law, as over-king of Leinster. That is, replaced in the sense of he had given him the king of Leinster, or the kingdom of Leinster, at this point. Citric, meanwhile, was sitting comfortably in Dublin. But he forced Mael Sessional's hand and declared himself the first high king of Ireland. Wait, what? High king? I, I thought... Okay, let's explain something here. Before 999 and the battle at Wicklow Pass... 
Mayo Sechnell was considered, quote-unquote, High King of Ireland, but, you know, that's kind of a bit of a misnomer. And I wasn't as clear in the last episode as I'd like to be, so I'd like to maybe, you know, flesh that idea out here and, and try to clarify it. First of all, yes, Mael Seshnel was the king of Tara, which was the most prestigious and most influential of all Irish kingdoms. But this one seat of power was also the most coveted. Therefore, by default, all other kings paid him tribute and, and loyalty, and he stepped in on important matters between the two, like two or more kingdoms, just to make a judgment or a ruling or... But not all Irish kingdoms gave him the same support he demanded. Not all publicly acknowledged their fealty to him. In fact, the further south you go, the less Tara's influence, as the kingdom of Tara was located in the northeastern part of Ireland. So stop and think, where was Brian from? Brian was born in the small kingdom of Thomond to a father who was king of both Thomond and Dalgash regions. Dalgash and Thomond are located in Munster, near the port city of Limerick. For those unfamiliar with Irish geography, Munster, Limerick, see these are places located in the far southwestern part of Ireland. They were almost as far from Tara as you could get on Ireland. It's unquestionable that Brian's father knew of Tara's influence and it's highly likely that Brian, to some degree, even when he first took control of Munster, knew to at least pay attention to Mayo Sessnell's rule. But Brian, at the end of the day, didn't owe this quote-unquote high king much of anything. At least not behind closed doors where, where his ambitions began to take shape. The difference between Mayo Sessnell's high kingship and Brian's high kingship lies in the fact that Mael Seshnel did not force outright submission of the lower kingdoms. It was more of an expectation after a century or more of, of loyalty. Whereas Brian, well, he outright conquered them, more or less, either by military expansion or just that political influence of, hey, you know, I can be there anytime I want. Mael Seshnel could not claim outright submission across the island. It's just that simple. This would make Brian the first actual High King of Ireland in both reality as well as name. In fact, when he, was, when he went to Armagh in the north of Ireland, an incredibly special place to the Irish, as it's said to be the place where Ireland's patron saint, patron saint Patrick began his Irish ministry, a secretary of Brian's added a note to this illuminated manuscript they call the, the Book of Armagh that, Brian, uh, that gave Brian the title of Imperator Scatorum, or Irish Emperor. Wait, doesn't that say Scatorum, though? Yeah, so, okay, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but it's good to recognize something we haven't had a chance to discuss on the show. So far that, that the Irish and Scottish share many ancient connections, and, and not just genetically either. Largely, it was cultural, and, and there was a lot of interaction between the Scots and the Irish, in the preceding centuries, notably a shared, or at least a, you know, similar language called Gaelic. These languages split, obviously, but they share the same roots. At the time, it wasn't uncommon to call the Irish Gaelic-Irish, Scottish, or Gaels. And side note, I understand the Book of Armagh was written in Latin, but by claiming the title Imperator Scotorum, Brian was channeling the ancient Romans, something he, most, he was most likely all too familiar with way back when he was the last son in a long line of succession, who was subsequently thrown into a monastery to read and write about history, Irish or otherwise. To me, Brian was no fool. This was a deliberate attempt to establish dominance. Also, by using the adjective scotorum, he was also claiming to be the de facto ruler of the Scottish across the sea as well, which might have been a power play he could have had in the back of his mind, uh, really in the back of his always scheming mind. In fact, it was the Annals of Ulster, Brian's obituary says that he was, quote, the overking of the Irish of Ireland and of the foreigners and of the Britons, the Augustus of the whole northwest of Europe. See, I can't help but think that Brian had 
larger plans than just Ireland. Now, being an obituary, he obviously didn't write that himself, but he could have orchestrated the narrative to have that idea posthumously given to him. I don't know. I, I just don't know. But I also can't let go of the fact that that would be exactly something Brian would try to do if he just had the time. So again, I ask, what's changed here? Did Brian actually lead a revolution or not? Well, on its surface, when compared to other revolutions we're taught in school, yeah, he did. We're taught that revolutions are an overthrow of the existing political authority in exchange for another. In the American Revolution, the American colonists threw off the monarchic yoke of British rule in favor of one in which the citizenry at large was instilled with the political authority. But is revolution solely based on whether an existing authority is replaced? See, at its heart, revolution is highly complex. It's not as simple as what you find in a history textbook. The word itself, revolution, comes to us in 2020 from Latin, by way of Old French. The Latin verb revolvere translates to to roll back. So I ask yourself, what did Brian roll back? Well, he upset the existing political hierarchy to the point that he raced over a century of dynastic overlordship. The Uanil, though still highly influential, were no longer the ruling dynasty collecting all the loyalty and tribute across the island. In fact, it was between 1002 and 1005 that Brian began refer being referred to as Brian Boru. Boru comes from the old Irish word having to do with collecting cattle, which can be interpreted as, you know, cattle were incredibly valued in Ireland and elsewhere throughout the medieval period. This word, Boruma, can be interpreted as basically Brian who collects massive tributes, which is a clear indication as to the power that Brian welded around this time. Okay, so did Brian roll back Ireland to previous Viking times? Well, as we know, the Vikings were more or less contained on the coastlines in their ports, but the, the ports of Limerick, Cork, Waterford, Wexford, and Dublin weren't anything close to what the Scandinavians grew them to be, if they were even existing at all before the Vikings. For instance, Dublin was founded by Vikings. So I don't believe uh, that Brian rolled back Ireland in that sense. He simply usurped these points as his these ports, excuse me, as his own. Did Brian roll back Ireland to pre-Uanil High Kingship? Well, not exactly. See, if it wasn't the Uanil dynasty, it was someone else, though the Uanil grew the high kingship during their tenure. Okay, so forget the rollback definition of the word revolution for a moment. Let's take it for that first way we looked at it again. To overthrow an existing political authority and replace it with a fundamentally different political structure. Did Brian overthrow the existing Uanil political authority and replace it with a fundamentally different political structure? Well, he certainly overthrew the power and influence aspect of the Uanil clan. However, and many suggest this could have been his fatal flaw, Brian did not replace the existing political structure. And that's where you have to look at the surface definition of revolution which is what we were like, yeah, he kind of, he, he did lead a revolution. But now that we're digging deeper, you have to dig deeper into this word about, you know, did he roll back or did he create a brand new structure? After looking at that, I mean, he simply took it over and, and made it his own. He replaced nothing but the man, quote unquote, at the top. He implemented no new civil reforms. He made no attempt to right the wrongs of the past. Side note, in fact, it was Mayo Seschnell before him that tried to outlaw the Irish being exported as slaves, not Brian. And he wasn't even forward thinking to, I don't know, write down a set of laws that contradicted the old ways, something. He oversaw an Ireland that still teemed with kingdoms and clans and ancient regional rivalries and Norse-managed ports. The only change was that Brian was atop it all. 
until he wasn't. See, until we find him well into his 80s, here we go, kneeling and hunched over praying, I imagine, you know, that image of his timber-like hands clasping across there in his tent alone, the distant sounds of battle just barely reaching his ears. Praying for what? Well, no one knows for sure. We can only use our imaginations, and, and my imagination takes me to a place where I see this elderly warrior king of Ireland, having held the crown of Imperator Scotorum for another seven years after he received that inscription in the Book of Armagh. I see him replaying everything in his mind and asking himself the same questions we are right, we are right now, 2,006 years later. What was all this for? What have I changed about Ireland? How will I be remembered? And who, after all these years and all these victories, who will possibly be able to stop me? This tent he was in, as he knelt and prayed, well, it was lightly guarded. It was also Good Friday, 1014, a holiday in which Christians remember the day in which Jesus of Nazareth endured the just incredible hardship and torture ending in their saviors hanging on the Roman cross and subsequent death many hours later. Good Friday kicks off a weekend that culminates in the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. Unfortunately for Brian, there would be no resurrection. Brian, it seems, having made no fundamental change to the lands under his, his control, I mean, he was his own martyr. Do you remember Gormleth? Between 999 and 1013, she was Brian's wife. Before Brian, between 980 and 999, she was Mael Seshnell's wife. And before that, she was Olaf Quaron's wife. Olaf was Dublin's Viking ruler, remember? Also the father to Citric Silkbeard. See, Brian and Gormleth, they never really jived. Their relationship was understandably stretched to the point of breaking the moment they were married. And by 1013, it broke. She left Brian and traveled to the Isle of Man and the Orkney Islands, both Viking strongholds. What Brian didn't know right away was that she was rallying Viking support to join her brother, Mael Morda, and her son, Citric Silkbeard, in one last uprising to overthrow Brian. Sigurd of Orkney and Brodir of Man brought large contingents of soldiers to Ireland where they met up with Citric and Mael Morda. But they also sent envoys to Iceland and Normandy who also sent men to fight as well. What Gormleth failed to mention to all her co-conspirators was, see, <laughs> she'd promised them all the same prize. The prize was the crown of High King of Ireland. Brian heard word of these Viking soldiers on their, on their way, so between 1013 and 1014, he was harassing the rebels left and right in Leinster, trying to thin out their numbers as much as possible. It was clear to all by 1014 that beating Brian on the battlefield would take an unprecedented effort. That, coupled with Brian's numerical advantage when everyone finally met in Clontarf on April 23rd, 1014, along with his extreme age, might be the reasons why Brian was in his tent during the battle and wasn't staying with his men out on the battlefield like he'd always done. The day that famous Battle of Clontarf took place, Gormleth's army, consisting of warriors from Leinster, Dublin, Orkney, Man, Iceland, and Normandy, they numbered 3,000 Vikings and 3,000 Irish. Brian alone had that total in battle-hardened Irishmen, but he also had roughly 1,000 Viking mercenaries on top of that, most of them likely from his ports in Limerick, Cork, Waterford, and Wexford. This is really saying something as to Brian's influence, as he was able to muster a substantial amount of support from Tagmor O'Kelly of the Uy Main. However, due to previous agreements with Mael Seshnell, Meath withdrew their men at the last second. So Brian entered battle with roughly 1,000 more warriors than the rebellious army just outside Dublin. I pull the following course of, uh, of events from the website battleofclontarf.net. It's a great website. I highly recommend it. These, these people did a great job explaining the main parts of the battle. So 
Citric first ordered his son to take a large contingent of men outside the walls of the city. He stayed inside with another thousand men. See, Citric was on the left. Male Morda's men were in the center, and other Vikings manned the right flank. Across the battlefield, Brian's army. The Munster and Connacht men were in the middle. His mercenaries on his right and Brian's own Dalgash warriors on his left flank. Funny enough, Mael Cessnell, his army of Meath soldiers having withdrawn, were watching it all from a distance. This battlefield must have been huge. Some of the earliest fighting was off near the beaches around Dublin, while others were back in the fields. Before retreating back to his tent, the 80-some-year-old Brian rode in front of his men shouting a blood-pumping speech, and as he rode away, his men marched forward. I imagine by the time he reached his tent, this part of the battle had already commenced. He must have known without a shadow of a doubt that this day would be a bloody one indeed. Brodeer of the Isle of Man pushed inland until Brian's brother, Wolf the Quarrelsome, hey, who said Vikings were the only one who could pull off awesome names? See, Wolf challenged Brodeer to a duel. These two warriors must have put on quite a show, all while their men pummeled each other all around them. Wolf landed one good one on Brodeer, knocking him down, and Brodeer ran off, and Wolf and his men proceeded to decimate Brodeer's men. It's said that this battle, lasting from morning until evening, was just a relentless onslaught of Irish and Viking fury, each side fighting for their survival, each side having both Irish and Scandinavians on their side. As Wolf and the rest of Brian's army continued to wipe out the enemy, and I say wipe out purposely here, as even the website I mentioned calls it, <laughs> calls it a near extermination. As they go into the afternoon, a man slips into Brian's tent while he prayed. At the same time, across the battlefield, Male Morta was on the retreat, but Brian's men cut off their escape to the ocean. They turned and headed back toward Dublin at a sprint, but as they came to the bridge with Wolf's contingent tailing them closely, across the bridge, Male Morta saw the one thing he both never expected and just couldn't comprehend. For some unknown reason, Mael Cessnell Macdomnall, the former High King of Ireland, sat waiting with his soldiers from Meath, the ones he had withdrawn earlier that day. Mael Morta was trapped. Mael Cessnell did not move forward. Instead, he watched Wolf's men kill every single man, including Mael Morta MacMurcada the former king of Leinster. Back in the tent, while Wolf was orchestrating the final blow to the rebel army, his brother lay dying, the blood and his life seeping from his body with every breath. The assailant already escaped. With this last one breath, I wonder what he thought. It was his finest day, despite death tolls of 10,000 or more Yet he lay motionless, at peace, praying in his last moments. It must have played out like this. Brian's lifeless body was discovered. Word was rushed out to Wolf and the other leaders of Brian's army. Wolf reached the tent. He must have seen some sign or clue, and he remembered seeing Brodeer run off after their fight. Or it could have been even that someone saw Brodeer exit the tent and told Wolf. But what we know is that Wolf hunted Brodeer down and brutally murdered his brother's assassin. That unprecedented effort we talked about, it didn't happen. Brian's forces, though taking heavy casualties themselves, overwhelmingly won the day. The Battle of Clontarf was another in a decades-long line of victories by the unstoppable Brian Baru. However, for Brian, specifically, it was not his unstoppable day. But his men must have revered him, if anything, than as the warlord they all served. But to me, it seems more than that. Brian didn't have the reputation of being the kindest person, but to command so many warriors for so many years through so many victories, well, maybe there was still something honorable that I 
you know, I as a man who had never served militarily just simply cannot understand that of the warrior mindset and the men who are loyal to the end to the men who lead them. Brian must have been respected because his entire army passed his lifeless body around above their heads for quite some time into the evening. And to quote this great website, Brian, quote, lay in state in the Cathedral of Armagh for up to 12 days before his burial, end quote. So there you have it. That's the life of Brian Baru, Ireland's first true high king, reigning officially from 1002 to 1014, though, as we've seen, his story began long before that. For the last 1,000 years, his legacy has been that of the warlord who kicked the Viking presence out of Ireland once and for all, but that's just not true. As we know, they came back. Well, it was the Normans, but still Vikings, you know. And the Viking presence never really left. I mean, he kicked out those those usurpers or those wannabe usurpers from the Orkneys and the Isle of Man and even the guys who came over from Iceland and Normandy. But again, Viking presence never left. In fact, Citric Silkbeard, astonishingly, remained in charge of Dublin afterwards. The latter half of the 10th century and into the 11th century was not about kicking Vikings out of Ireland. Ireland's struggles during this time was hardly similar to England's and only inched toward it when Gormleth made her power move to dethrone Brian in 1013. No, Brian's rise and fall was nothing more than a series of internal struggles between Irishmen for supremacy on the island. The thing that separates Brian from his contemporaries was that he was the first man to unite all of Ireland. The Vikings, though an important presence, were in a distant second as to what Brian's legacy should entail. So, dying on Good Friday, I mean, it must have some symbolic meaning, right? Brian was no martyr, because his cause was not a universal cause. His cause was his own quest for power. So one of my favorite Irish proverbs only holds so much water here, and I, I, but I think I'll throw it out there. I think it still somewhat applies. It says, A scholar's ink lasts longer than a martyr's blood. Brian's remembered very well today by those in Ireland, but for centuries he was remembered incorrectly, again, as the Irishman who rid the island of Vikings, you know, much like St. Patrick ridding the island of snakes. Yet both are simply not true. But what people write about may not always be factual, but if one squints, one can see the admiration between the lines the Irish have for Brian. The stereotype, unfair or not, I have of an Irishman is simple. Hardworking, unwaveringly loyal to his own, passionate, and simply unafraid of a challenge. You know, I've not found a situation in which Brian's territories ever tried to depose him, save for his original rebellious foes like Mael, Morda, and Citric. Heck, the man he himself deposed as High King of Ireland even helped win the Battle of Clontarf. To me, Brian should be remembered as a paradigm of the fiercely loyal and independent Irishman, not some revolutionary hero. In short, Brian was no revolutionary because there was no rolling back and beginning fresh or instilling a new unified national structure, but, but taking a look at Brian's story and dissecting the idea of revolution early in this podcast will serve us in the future as we begin to see more and more flickers of the sparks that will change the world throughout the next several centuries. And I don't just mean politically, but culturally and philosophically, ideologically, and commercially. I am so glad you joined us for the culmination of Brian's story. In the end, Mael Seshnell regained his crown as High King of Ireland until his death in 1022, though no one questions the fact that the Uinil dynasty's support and prestige were severely impacted by Brian Baru's interregnum. Also, 
Citric Silkbeard still led Dublin, as I said, until his death in the early 1030s. Maelmorda MacMurkada was dead along with the Viking leader of the Isle of Man and potential usurper Brodeer. Like I said, nothing, nothing really changed, as far as I can tell, from Brian's rise insofar as it put everyone in a seat of power and influence on high alert that this amazing place called Ireland is always in flux. And the moment you're not ready, someone will rise and challenge you. Thank you all for downloading and listening. We had quite a spike in listenership and new subscriptions this week, so a huge welcome to all our new listeners. I'm determined to grow this show, so I ask that you share this show with those you know. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast app or site, like Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Spotify Breaker, and Anchor, among many others. And we're also on Facebook. Just search for Fortune's Wheel Podcast. We're on Twitter, at Wheel Podcast. And on Instagram, at Fortune underscore Wheel underscore Podcast, all lowercase. You can also email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com. I encourage questions, book recommendations, differing perspectives, and even suggestions for topics covered. Again, thank you. Next week, we finally return to England in 1014. It's been a while, so we will do a brief recap at the start of the next episode, but I promise we will get right to the action. You are about to witness the violent death throes of a kingdom that has held sway in southern, central, eastern, and parts of northern England for the better part of 500 years, though as we know, it did get a bit messy in 793 and again around the 880s. King Ethelred, Edmund Ironside, Canute, Emma of Normandy, Thorkel the Tall, and so many more incredibly fascinating folks will consume the majority of the next few episodes as we see one kingdom fall and another one rise to even greater prominence. I can't wait to tell you about it. <laughs>